And, and Lord, uh, I pray that you would uh, minister to us your word that is alive. Thank you that we can be here. We got a little bit of cloud cover and a little bit of a cool breeze. So help us be attentive. And Lord, to take your word and plant it in our hearts that it may take root there and produce fruit in our lives. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So in your Bibles, Matthew chapter 9, if you'll turn there, we've gone as far as verse 9 as we continue our, our study in Matthew. And at this time in our study, you know that Jesus is ministering in the Galilee region. Many people, great multitudes are coming to see him. Uh, they are amazed at his teaching. They're marveling that he teaches with great authority. And he is healing with great power. Every kind of sickness and disease, freeing the demoniacs. And it's never been seen before. Such power, such uh, authority displayed. And last time we saw that he healed a man who was sick with palsy. And Jesus now is in direct conflict with the religious leaders as he told that man, you recall in the story in the beginning of chapter 9, that there were four individuals that would bring their friend that was sick with palsy, couldn't walk, on a stretcher to, to Jesus. The house is packed out. They can't get to Jesus. So they hoist him up on the roof of the house. They tear a hole in the roof and drop that man right in front of Jesus. And as we read that, uh, Jesus would look at him and say to the man who had palsy, Son, be of good cheer, for your sins are forgiven you. And you recall that the religious leaders that were present, the gospel tells us that they were there from all over the region as far as Jerusalem, those who were teachers of the law. And when they heard Jesus say that to that man who had palsy, that your sins are forgiven, they would reason within themselves that this is blasphemy. Only God can forgive sin. And we walked through that last time, and now the contention between the religious elite of the land and Jesus is only going to grow. It's going to get worse because Jesus now is going to call to follow him a tax collector, a publican. And they were hated. They were the most despised in the land for reasons that we're going to discuss. But the religious leaders thought that the tax collectors and other sinners, they couldn't even be saved. And all of a sudden, this itinerant preacher from Nazareth is going to call this, this one, a tax collector, to be his disciples. So let's begin to look at that as we read in Matthew chapter 9. As I said, we've gone as far as verse 9. And we re read there that as Jesus passed on from there, that he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, follow me. So he arose and followed him. We know from Mark and Luke that Matthew, he was also called Levi. And some have suggested that Jesus changed uh, Levi's name to Matthew, which means gift of God. But there's no biblical evidence for that. And also in this time, in this culture, it wasn't unusual for a Jewish man to have two names. So we don't know why uh, he's called Matthew as well. Maybe that was his name. Maybe Jesus changed it to Matthew. But it tells us, as he writes here, inspired by the Spirit of God, writing about himself, that he's sitting at the tax table. He is a tax collector. Now, with his name being Levi, we can think about this, and it is very possible, very probable, that most likely that he was raised in a Levitical family. His name being Levi, I doubt if he was from the tribe of 
Nashtali, you know, or, or Asher, or, you know, Zebulun, and his name is called Levi. He, he's probably from a Levitical family. The, the tribe of Levi, as you know from your Old Testament reading, they were the priestly tribe. So every priest was a Levite, but not every Levite was a priest. There was the direct descendants of Aaron that were the priestly family that worked in the temple. And they had certain duties. There were different families of the Levites that assisted the priests there in the temple. So he probably came from a Levitical family named Levi. Um, it indicates that perhaps from a priestly family, but I think there's other evidences as well. You see, in the gospel, he uses 99 Old Testament quotes, which is more than any other of the three gospel writers. 38 times he writes that it might be fulfilled. None of the other gospel writers use that phrase. So obviously he was one that has studied the Old Testament. He was one that I believe was familiar, familiar with the Old Testament. And thinks that, think about the implications here. I think that he probably had parents. He had a mom who said, Levi, you need to study hard. You need to be worthy. You're going to serve in the temple in Jerusalem. Your lot's going to come. And you're going to assist the priests there at the temple in Jerusalem, the holy city. It's the most holy place in the universe. You're going to go there. You need to study hard. You need to be worthy of it. You need to, to uh, you know, be proud of your religious heritage. You're of the tribe of Levi. You're of the tribe of Moses and of Aaron. But what would happen to Levi? I think, what would happen to him? That all, he comes from this priestly line. He comes from a Levitical line, perhaps. He's familiar with the Old Testament. What happened to where he would become a publican, a tax collector? And I think that perhaps what may have happened is that he saw the hypocrisy of the religious leaders that Jesus is going to address with harsh words. And he said, if this is religion, forget about it. And he rebels and he goes the complete opposite extreme and becomes a tax collector. And he would be considered a traitor by the religious leaders and the people of Israel. And the reason that, that I point that out is because Matthew uses the word hypocrite in his gospel more than all the rest of the Bible combined. And I think that it very much wounded him to see the hypocrisy of the religious leaders, to see the, the inconsistency and, and, and the burden that they put on the people. And he says, why should I do that? I don't want to be a part of that. They don't care about the people. With all their traditions and all their rules, I'll never be worthy enough. I'll never be good enough. I, I might as well just do my own thing. I don't want to be under that hypocrisy like the religious elite. I, I'm turned off by it. And so he goes headlong into the world. And I think that is worth our consideration because you know people, I do as well. Maybe you're here. And in your heart you say that those pastors, those elders, those Christians, they're a bunch of hypocrites. They don't care about me. They're a bunch of phonies. They talk about being religious. But I know what they really do. I really know what my parents do. 
and then they dragged me off to church. I know what that group of Christians do and how they talk and how they gossip and what they're involved in. They treat people terribly. I was treated terribly. They act like the world. And I want no part of that. And so they go headlong into the world and begin to follow the world. His life is Matthew here. Levi is going to be radically changed because it isn't about religion and the religious establishment and trying to be worthy. But he will discover it's about a person, the person of Jesus Christ and having a relationship with him, the one who truly loves me. Now the Talmud said that there were two different kinds of tax collectors. There are those who are called the gabberai. That, that is a general tax gabberai or gatherer. And the tax gatherer would go out and he would collect for uh, you know, the taxes on somebody's income or how much you know, uh, you know, people are in their family or how much land you had, whatever it may be. But there was the second class of tax collectors who were called the moksa. And these were the tax gatherers that would bid their position and purchase it, and then they would use the tax gatherers to gather taxes. And they would purchase their position because Herod Antipas, who was the ruler up in the Galilee region, he would have to pay tribute to Rome every year, so he would hire these moksa, these tax collectors, that had to produce for Herod Antipas and to pay uh, you know, a certain amount to him, a, a quota to him. So Herod Antipas could pay Rome. And that's how the emperors became very, very wealthy. So the tax collector gatherer had a quota that they had to reach. And anything above that quota, they kept for themselves. And there was really no rules. You had the Roman soldiers that you could use to back you up if you were shaking someone down for money. And so these tax collectors generally were wealthy. And we uh, see that in the scriptures. There's evidence of that. They were more wealthy than most of the people. Matthew here, we're going to see in a few verses, has a house that he can have a number of people that he can host. We also know that when John the Baptist was baptizing at the river, it was a baptism of repentance, that who came and said, what must we do? The tax collectors. And John said, don't, you know, gather, don't, don't take more than what your quota is. Don't be ripping the people off, in other words. Now, Mark and Luke also tells us that Levi here, Matthew, is at the tax office, which gives indication that he is of that second class, of the moksa. And we also know from scripture that the, the main tax office was probably in Jericho, right? Who ran that office? It was Zacchaeus. Remember Zacchaeus? Zacchaeus, as mentioned in Luke's gospel, he, Luke tells us, is the chief tax collector. Zacchaeus, who was a wee little man that climbed up in the sycamore tree to see Jesus, and he ended up getting saved. I think these guys knew each other. 
Matthew knew of Zacchaeus, no doubt there in the Jordan Valley. Matthew is running this tax office. He's at the tax table. And he's probably heard of this itinerant preacher now that is bringing huge crowds into the Galilee, Capernaum. Wow, talk about a gold mine here. Business is good. But I also wonder if Matthew also heard that this one, that he went to Jerusalem, and he overturned the money changers' tables, and he, he rebuked the religious leaders. See, keep in mind that Jesus cleansed the temple twice. He did it in John chapter 2, early in his ministry, in his first year of ministry, where he went into Jerusalem and did that. And then John chapter 3, Nicodemus comes to him and says that we know you come from God because no one can do the things that you do unless God is with you. Oh, Nicodemus, Jesus said, you're the master teacher of Israel. Don't you know that you must be born again? And Nicodemus is struggling with that. And, and here Matthew, I'm sure, heard of it. What a sight that must have been, overturning the money changers' tables, rebuking the religious leaders. What an incredible man this must be. And the tax collectors we know in the land were greatly despised. They were hated. They would con be considered as traitors to Israel uh, to work for Rome. And it was a policy in Israel that you could never marry a tax collector. And in all three synoptic gospels, it says that Jesus saw the man. That Jesus saw Levi. And he saw a man, and it has the meaning that Jesus stopped and looked at him for a time. And Jesus, with those eyes of love looking at him, not looking at him with disgust and with hate and contempt and with disappointment and snarling at him, Jesus saw the man. He saw Matthew, and he saw the struggles. And he knew the doubts and the pain and the sin and the sorrow and the anger and the bitterness and the brokenness. And Jesus saw a man, Matthew, and he goes up to him and he says two words. He says, follow me. You might be despised of men, but you're a gift from God. And I think that Matthew had been listening to Jesus, watching people be healed. And now this incredible man named Jesus says, follow me. So verse 9, he rose and followed him. Luke in this account tells us that he left all. Then he arose and followed him. And we need to note that order because sometimes Christians will say that I'm going to rise up for Jesus. But they're hanging on to stuff. They're being weighed down by stuff. Jesus warned the disciples, don't be weighed down through cares of life. Be careful. We all have cares of life. And sometimes Christians hang on to stuff, the worldly stuff, the old hangouts, the old habits. And instead of rising up for Jesus, they end up being burdened down because they don't realize this. That to rise up in the Lord, there needs to be a leaving oftentimes. Those things that are weighing you down spiritually. And as you read the Gospels, it's interesting to note the things that people left behind who rose up and followed him. Didn't we see in chapter 4 of this Gospel that Peter and Andrew and James and John, what did they do? They left their nets and their boats and they followed Jesus. I think about John chapter 4, how the woman at the well, we know that story, a lot of us. She came specifically to fill her water pot with water. But after she talked to Jesus about living water, 
You drink of that well, you're going to thirst again. You drink the water that I have to give, you're never thirst again. Because I have living water to give to you. And what happened? It says that she left her water pot there. Ran back into town to tell the men of the city, come and see a man who's told me everything that I have done. So they all went out to hear him. But she left the water pot behind. I think about the widow at name in Luke's gospel who was leading the processional, the funeral, where her only son was in the casket. And guess what happened? Jesus touched him and he rose up. And it tells us that he left that casket behind. I think about the beggar, Bartimaeus, who used his garment to hold the money that people would toss in this direction. And when Jesus said, Bartimaeus, come forth, it says that he rose up and he left that garment behind. He just left it there, no need of it any longer. And I wonder, I just wonder, what the Lord might be speaking to you this morning, this day, that you need to leave behind because you're being held back, you're being weighed down by something that you've been hanging on to. And he wants to tell you this, that the freest people in the Lord, those who truly live in his peace and in his grace and intimacy and closeness and experience that abundant life are those who have left things behind that just weigh them down. That just become a burden, just leave it behind. The fishing boats, the money, the garments, the water pots, those things no longer have a control or a priority in my life. And he says to us, rise up and leave it behind. And so he arose and followed him. He's now leaving the king of Rome, serving him. And he's going to work and serve the king of kings, Jesus Christ. He left everything. He left it all in his heart to rise up and follow Jesus. And as we continue here in verse 10, now what happened is Jesus sat at the table in the house that behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard that, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So Matthew has all his tax collecting buddies and sinners, the only ones that would hang out with him. He, he has them over to his house. And, and oftentimes we read this and we think Matthew's having a farewell dinner. He would say farewell to his work and he would follow Jesus. But I think that it's more than just a goodbye party. It's a hello gathering. Luke says it was a great feast. It's an opportunity for Matthew to introduce to them his newfounded Lord. And so Jesus is having dinner with all these people. He was in the midst of them. He ate with them. And then the religious leaders pass by and they see this. And they say to the disciples, what is this? How can this be? Why does he do this? Eating with tax collectors and no sinners. You see, tax collectors, as I've said, were hated in the land. They would be blackballed from the synagogue. They were forbidden to have any religious or social contact with fellow Jews. They were actually ranked with the unclean animals. So Matthew invites Jesus and the other disciples to his house to meet his friends, other tax collectors and sinners. And the religious leaders see that, they're appalled, they're scandalized, they're watching Jesus, every turn, everything that he does. And, and it's obvious that your teacher is a friend to sinners. 
Why does he do this? Why does he eat with them? Doesn't he know who these people are? Why do you allow this? You see, Matthew never forgot where he came from. When we move into chapter 10, when he lists the 12 apostles, when he mentions himself, he says, Matthew, the tax collector. It is the only time that in the listing of the 12 apostles that his title is included. Matthew, I was a tax collector. And now I want other tax collectors and sinners to meet my new Lord. And Matthew wasn't hesitant to do that. And he has this great feast. You have to meet him. He changed my life. He stood in front of that tax table looking at me with those eyes of love. He wasn't looking at me with anger and with disgust. Every day at that tax table, I had the people look at me with anger, express words of anger, contempt, the religious establishment, but he embraced me and he spoke to me and he reached out to me and he called me. Yes, Matthew left all, but he lost nothing and he gained everything. And notice that these tax collectors and sinners sat down with Jesus. What a sight that must have been. Meanwhile, here are the Pharisees with their robes and their phylacteries on their foreheads and their wrists and their noses in the air. And they saw it. And they're outside. And they said to the disciples, Why does your teachers eat with these people? In that culture, it meant that you were one with that person. It was a sign of fellowship. Why does he eat with them? And Jesus, coming out of the house, hears that. And he says in verse 12, Those who are well have needed of a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. The religious leaders, they thought they knew everything. That I desire mercy and not sacrifice, quoting from Hosea chapter 6, verse 6. For I did not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. People who are healthy don't need a doctor, but those who are sick. And just a little side note, if anyone comes to you and says, you're going to a doctor, that's a lack of faith. You shouldn't do that. We're not called to go to doctors you know, as Christians. We shouldn't do that. Jesus said, Jesus said, those who are sick have need of a physician. So take them to this verse. But back to our text, as we look at this, what Jesus is saying to those Pharisees is, yes, these people are sinners. Your diagnosis is correct. I'm eating with sinners. There is a sickness, and it is fatal. It is terminal, and it will lead to death because the wages of sin is death. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. I come to them. The same reason a doctor goes to those who are sick. I didn't come to be infected. I'm not here partying with these guys. He comes to make a diagnosis and to bring a cure. And he is the cure. He's the cure to the sickness of sin. Now with that said, sometimes Christians will say, well, I want to witness to my friends. And I'm going to go to that party or to that bar and to the old hangout and talk to my friends. Listen, be wise. Be careful. Matthew invited his friends to his house where he can control the atmosphere and have them sit down and introduce them to Jesus. So you be careful. Don't meddle to your own hurt. Be wise. Because oftentimes than not, and I've talked to many people over the years, that that was their desire. I'm going to go you know, with the guys after work down to the pub or I'm going to go to this party. 
what ends up happening is those places end up infecting you when you go there. You're laughing at their dirty jokes. You're involved in sin and carnality. Uh, you're drinking what they're drinking. You're smoking what they're smoking. No. No, don't go there. Pray about how you can share with those who are lost, but you bring them to a place where you can talk truly about Jesus, where they can meet Jesus. Hey, you want to come over? I'd love to have you come over for some coffee or dessert. Maybe have a little dinner. Let's go take a walk somewhere. You bring them here. You bring them here. Because did you know this is a place for sinners? So they can hear the gospel. And you do it because you care for the people that are linked to you in your life. And you know that there is a sickness just as at one time you were stricken with the sickness of sin. But there is a cure and it is the great physician Jesus Christ. And I want you to meet him, to know him, to follow him. If he can forgive me and change my life and give me a new heart, he can forgive you and give you a new heart. That is why he was with them. That's why we need to introduce people to Jesus, to those who aren't well, sick in their hearts because of sin. Go and learn what this means. And he quotes from Hosea chapter 6. Now, when Jesus said that, go and learn what that means this means and he quotes from the scripture that would really annoy them because they would boast about their experts in the scriptures and we will see as we travel through Matthew and the confrontation between the religious leaders and Jesus increases that they're going to come and ask him questions try to back him into a corner they're going to try to trick him and trap him and all of this and oftentimes he responded by saying it is written do you not know go and learn what this means I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Jesus didn't just see a tax collector. He saw a man who needed to be cured of the sickness of sin. And Jesus loved that man, Matthew, and he loves you. And he loves the people around you that are in their sin and worldly. And go and learn what this means you look down at everyone else, you religious leaders. You judge everyone to condemnation. You think you're better than everyone else. You have no love or compassion or mercy. You brag about how you know the scriptures, and they would. They could tell you how many words are in the book of Isaiah. They could tell you the middle word of the book of Isaiah. They could tell you every dot and tittle of the book of Isaiah but you don't know the heart of God. You don't know the heart of God. You don't know his love for the lost, and that's why he came, to save that which is lost. I didn't come to call the righteous, and we know that none of us are righteous, but sinners to repentance, to bring them life, to bring forgiveness, to bring eternal hope and reconciliation with the Father. That's why he came. And that's why we have the message of hope. He is our hope and future to give to others. And so, Father, we thank you. We thank you so much for just a few verses that many of us are familiar with. 
But Lord, as we look at this, I'm so grateful that you care for the Matthews of the world. You care for, for sinners. Because that was us, lost, stricken by sin, knowing that we can never be worthy in and of ourselves, eternally lost through the wages of sin being death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, and that's why Jesus came. Listen, if you're here, you're listening, and you've looked at religion, you, you've looked at Christians, and maybe they hurt you or fallen short, or look to Jesus. He is your hope. He's the one that loved you so much that he went to a cross and died for you. And he's calling you. He's calling you to follow him, to be saved, to be forgiven. To not only have life, but life abundantly, joy and peace and fulfillment and satisfaction. He said to the woman at the well, you'll thirst again if you keep drinking of the water of the world, but you drink of the living water, you'll never thirst again. He loves you. Will you call out to him? Whoever calls in the name of the Lord shall be saved. He sees your heart. He sees the hurt. He sees the struggles. He sees the doubts. He sees the confusion. And he says, I love you. Come to me. And I'll give you a new heart. I'll forgive you. I'll bring you into right relationship with the Father. But you need to repent. You need to rise up and follow me. And leave the world behind. Will you do that? Because whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And you can in your heart say, Jesus, I come to you right now to follow you. I turn to you and I come to the cross and ask that you forgive me of my sins. I believe you died for me and made atonement for my sins. You rose again in your life speaking to my heart. So I ask you to be my personal Lord and Savior. And I want to learn of you and walk with you. And I thank you for your love for me and bringing me into the family of God in this new beginning. In Jesus' name. I also want to pray for you who maybe perhaps that you've seen religion and the struggles that you've gone through. I want you to see Jesus. He loves you so much. And maybe because of that hypocrisy that you've gone out into the world, but I want you to know it's a great deception. And he's calling you to come home. He's calling you to come home. He's desiring for you to, to live life the way it was meant to be lived, for his good pleasures, to be satisfied truly in your heart and in your soul, to have that peace that passes understanding, that, that joy unspeakable. And you can come to him right now as so you just say, Lord, I come to follow you. Not religion, not a religious leader or a church or anything, but to follow you and to know you and walk with you, Lord. And I thank you for that, for receiving me. For all of us, as we go our way, Lord, we pray for our nation that needs to turn to you, to repent of our sins, Lord. We've gotten so far away from you. We see our state burning up, the, the upheaval, just the things that are going on and we shake our heads, but Lord, we know that the answer is you, the gospel. 
So we lift our cities up to you, our state, our nation, that there be an outpouring of your Holy Spirit, a great awakening. And Lord, I pray that people would understand that you are our future and hope. Bless everyone here in the challenges we're going through, Lord, the difficulties. I pray that you would help us to, Lord, minister to those who are hurting, who are stricken with the sickness of sin. And, Lord, keep us safe. Help us to love one another, looking out not only for our own interests, but the interests of others. To care for one another. To be other-centered, not just self-centered. And Lord, to keep our eyes on you, in Jesus' name, amen. Listen, if you need prayer, you made a decision for the Lord, will you come up? And I'd just love to talk with you and pray with you. God bless you. See you next week, or last week out here, that we'll be out here, and then we're going to go back and, and have children's class. And so be praying for us, and Travis is going to close us.